Will you turn in your Bible, please, with me? To Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This last week was Veterans Day, um, which is a, a blessing. And so uh, being a veteran, it's, it's a great time to uh, tell all the kids about all the Army stuff and all those kind of things. Um, it's also interesting to be able just to reflect and think on experiences and stuff that's happened. And so Veterans Day is always kind of bittersweet in that sense. And um, this last week I was reflecting on the very first time that I ever did rappelling. Do you know what rappelling is? So in rappelling, you uh, attach yourself to a rope and you go down the side of a building. And at one time, I looked more like a soldier than I do now. <laughs> Beard, belly, and all that. <clears throat> anyway, so um, when, I was, when I was younger in those days, I went rappelling for the very first time ever. And um, they were instructing us how to do it. And Army-style rappelling is not like Air Force rappelling. So in the Air Force, they basically like put you in a hammock, and they just coddle you to the ground. And then they stroke your hair, and they're like, we love you. Everything's fine. Here's a cash bonus for being a, a, an airman. In the Army, in the Army, they came, God bless the Air Force, they're great, but you know, okay. In the Army, they give you a rope. So I got a rope, and they're like, here's your rope. And I'm holding this rope, and it's, you know, long, and I'm looking at the rope, and I said, what, what do I do with this? And they said, tie it around you. And I said, okay. Um, how? Like, what, what are we doing? Like, we're going to jump off that tower up there. And the tower is 80 feet tall, and it's there. And like, we're going to put you on this little incline one first so you can get a feel for it, and then we're going to throw you off of that, so you need the rope. And I was like, huh, this doesn't sound safe. Yeah, and they're like, we're going to make it very safe. Don't worry about it. And so um, we have 20 minutes of instruction that we're going to give you, and then we're going to do it. It'll be very safe. You're going to be fine. So I got the rope, and they said, we're going to tie a Swiss seat. And so the Swiss seat, you take the rope and you put it around your legs and around your waist and you tie it in. It's kind of like a, like a diaper, sort of. It goes around. And so you can sit on it. And so once you get the Swiss seat done, it kind of all connects in the middle. And you put a D-ring, like a climbing ring, clamps in there. And then that attaches to the rope in a special way that they wrap it around. And then when you go down the wall, that line is going to feed through that D-ring in such a way that if you put the rope behind your back, it will stop you. It won't flow. If you put it out, it will flow and you go fast. If you let go, you will fall. That's how it works. So we get ready to do the rappelling, and we go down the little incline one. And that was um, weird, but not great. And the seat, the Swiss seat, is very tight, very tight. Now, this is not, see, here's what we think. Like nylon, like you get this like cool climbing gear. It's a rope. And it's this big around. It's just a rope, right? And at the time, I weighed like 210. Right? So they tell me, we're going to step over this 80-foot straight wall at the top, step over, let yourself fall, the Swiss seat will catch you. And I'm like, done. I can do that. So the way you do it is you go to the wall, and you snap in and everything, and then you have your line, you look down, and you're terrified, and you start to shake. And then you just have to just lean back until you're basically 90 degrees, and your feet are on the wall, and you go. If you try to step and jump and you're not 90 degrees, you fall, and then you fall, and that's no good. So there's two ways to mitigate that. First of all, they teach you and they're showing you, and you're like, they use, here's what they do. Look in my eyes. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And you're, let's go, go. Keep going back. Keep going back. Look at me. Don't look down. Look at me. What are you doing? Don't look down. And there's usually bad words in there because it's an army. And so that's what they do. 
And that's, that's the first way they mitigate you falling. The second way they mitigate you falling is there's a person at the bottom who's the belay man or, or woman. So the belay person is at the bottom of the rope. And the belay, it's really interesting in rappelling, uh, if you stop the belay, so if you are that person, you grab the rope and you're watching, and if they start to fall, you basically grab on and hang on the rope. You just jump in the air and hang on the rope. And if you do that, it's the same effect as stopping yourself. So if you're just free falling, the belay person cinching down the rope like that will stop you. And, it, and then you just hang there. So here I am, top of the rope. And I am leaning back, leaning back, leaning back. And, um, and I'm doing OK. Like, things are going all right. But I'm going to tell you right now, that little Swiss seat is this big around. And 210 pounds are cinching down onto that as I'm going. And it was very uncomfortable. And in that moment, I didn't look down, but I looked at the D-ring like, this is not good. You know? So I'm looking at the guy, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I'm looking, and I'm going, and I'm looking, and I'm going. And then I looked, and then I slipped. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm 40 feet down. I'm just going. And I felt the, the rope tighten on me, and the belay guy just hangs on that sucker. And so all of a sudden, 40 feet down, I'm, and that will wake you up. <laughs> That'll wake you up right there. And then you're hang now you're hanging on the rope just in the middle of the wall. And like, what's wrong with you? You did it wrong. Come do it again. First of all, that's terrifying. <laughs> Second, put your feet on the wall. Jump. Oh, this guy. That's how it goes. So this is how you do it. So you got to write yourself, and then you go. So I'm telling you that story for two reasons. You know, it's, it was a weird day to learn. They say to you all the time, trust your equipment. Trust your equipment. Right? Trust your training, trust your equipment. There's another army adage that everybody memorizes, at least we did, uh, which was never forget that your equipment was made by the lowest bidder. <laughs> so trust your equipment, never forget it was made by the lowest bidder. <laughs> Do you remember that movie Aladdin when Aladdin uh, is going to jump off the, the top of the building when he first meets Jasmine, but he doesn't know she's the princess? And he turns to her and he said, what does he say to her? Do you remember? He goes, do you trust me? Right? All the Disney fans are like, oh, finally. A good sermon. <laughs> he goes, do you trust me? And then later she starts to realize that it might be him because he's going to get on the flying carpet or whatever. And he says, do you trust me? And she's like, yes. And you're like, oh, something's happening. Oh, that's Disney, right? Why does Jasmine trust Aladdin? Because she saw him do one act of kindness, right? Disney would tell you that we should trust based on what one person does in a moment. I'm telling you, life is more like sitting on a Swiss seat, where you lean back and you trust it, because you have to, and at the same time, it, sometimes it hurts a little bit. Sometimes it cinches down. It feels like all of your weight is being pinched onto this little tiny rope. And today we're going to talk about Jesus because, and I'm spoiling the sermon, but you can trust him. You can trust him. And Jesus is so kind and so good and so majestic and so powerful and so forgiving and so merciful and so wonderful. Life is in him. Everywhere he goes, it's just like the roses smell better. He's the creator of the earth. And the creator of the earth who also, ready, is the judge of the earth. And the great king and judge of the earth humbles himself to be a baby and grow up as a man, taking on flesh for us. 
enduring all the things we have endured yet without sin. And then he's surrounded by people in crowds who are coming to him just to get something from him. They don't care about him. He's going to save people in those crowds from horrible diseases, from demons, from awful things, from all kinds of trials and tribulations and brokenness and horrific stuff. People will change from being demon-possessed by legions of demons into being in their right mind, so much so that the communities in the area don't even know how to react. They're like, ah, isn't this the guy that we had to chain up in the tombs? What happened to him? And Jesus is just life everywhere he goes. And Jesus is healing people who just a short time later will stand in a crowd and yell, crucify him. How incredible. Jesus is so kind. He's so good. And in this story, we're going to see in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is just walking. He has just finished casting out some demons and doing things like that. He's been teaching the people. He's been using parables to teach everybody. Uh, in Matthew, it tells us that about this time, he actually calls the disciple Matthew, who's a tax collector, a guy who is hated in the community. And he's supposed to come and now be his disciple and walk with him. In fact, the, the calling of Matthew is going to be so scandalous that all the priests and religious leaders of the day are going to come and challenge Jesus on why it's okay for him to eat a meal with the scourge of the society. How could you possibly do that? And he's being challenged by the best religious people of the day. And so Jesus is going to walk through a crowd, and then somebody's just going to come up with requests to him. So let's read together Luke chapter 8. We're going to, Luke chapter 8, we're going to start reading at verse 40. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Here's what it says. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler at the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounding you, they're pressing in on you. In other words, I look around. How can you tell? What are you talking about? Everyone's touching you. Verse 46, But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Wow, praise the Lord for his word. This is an incredible story. This is an incredible story because in Matthew's account, the synagogue leaders have just come questioning Jesus. They are yelling at him. They are jeering at him. They are um, saying that he's no good and they're questioning his ministry. But one guy, Jairus, who sees what Jesus has done, comes and falls on his knees before him. And so you have a very strange juxtaposition here. 
of people who in the religious right are questioning all that Jesus is doing because they've got it figured out. And then this guy who comes because he has nothing left and falls down at Jesus' feet. Will you come save my daughter? She's 12. She's dying. There's nothing we can do. And here's the crazy response. What does Jesus do? It doesn't say he goes, yes, on three conditions. He doesn't say, I can see in your heart and I I perceive because I'm God that you're a decent guy. He doesn't say any of those things. Very next verse here in 42, it's in the middle of the verse. And Jesus went. He just, just, he just goes. It's not even its own verse. It's just in the middle. Jesus just starts walking. And as he's walking, the crowds are pressing in on him to get close to him. And Matthew tells us that there's this one lady who's thinking, if I can just touch just the fringe of his jacket. And I don't think he had like John Denver jacket kind of thing. But if I can just get a little just close enough just to barely get a wisp, I know that God will do something. And here she comes. Now, here's the crazy part. She has suffered with this discharge of blood for as old as the little girl is who's dying. For 12 years, she has suffered. Luke, the physician, he tends to be a little more detailed than other accounts of this. And so Luke's account here, he's telling us a little bit more about her, that she's had this discharge of blood. Church history would tell us in different accounts of things uh, that this is probably a menstrual problem that she's had, this lady. Um, I got to tell you, it's incredible that God has made people so amazingly. And ladies, he's made you amazingly. And this woman has had something that is incredible, that God's given us this body's designed to make babies. How amazing. That, but for 12 years, she's had a problem, and it's caused this bleeding. And I can't even imagine what that would be like, first of all. I mean, I literally can't because I'm a guy. But secondly, um, this, this condition has not only caused her physical grief, because I'm sure that there was pain or challenges or whatever, and going to see physicians in this time period was not like great bedside manner. So she's spent every penny she has to try to solve this problem on people who are doing who knows what to her to try to help her. And so she goes to all these places. And not only that, but because of this particular problem that she's having, and because it's a bodily fluid, she's unclean before the people. Now, I want to, here's what that means in the Bible. The Bible tells us that God requires worship in a certain way. So not only could you know, people were supposed to come to him, but God wanted people to come to him in a particular way. And so when the people came before him to worship, like in the temple, they had to be clean. And this, we tend to think of this in a moral way. So in a moral way, we tend to think if you're unclean, you're sinful. And that's bad. Now, sin will make you unclean. That's true. But cleanliness in the Bible is more about being acceptable for worship. And so here's a great way of thinking about it. My favorite illustration that I'm stealing, and I've said it before, so if you've heard it before, just let it be a refresher. Uh, my favorite illustration that I stole from one of my teachers way, way back when is a hospital. If you walk into a hospital and you are a patient and you're hurt, you come in hurt. So if you were just in a car accident, you're not going to be clean, right? Okay, that's one thing. Now, but when you go in there, you can't walk anywhere. And so if you are a patient, that's one thing. If you're a visitor and you come in, are you allowed to go anywhere in the hospital? No. Definitely not. If you're a visitor and you're allowed in those areas of the hospital because you have clearance, you also have to go through a certain protocol. So what's the, imagine with me that the, the hospital is like the temple where they're worshiping God. 
And in the temple, there were places that were the most holy places that only certain people go into and only certain times of year and in certain dress and all those kind of things. It's kind of like if the most holy place in a hospital were surgery. So if you're going to go into the brain surgery area, you can't just walk in there. Because if you walk in there, you're going to cause a lot of problems. If you go, want to go in there, what kind of things do you need to do? Scrub and wash, special clothes, hair is all taken care of, and you need to be qualified to come in. You're not going to just come in and just be like, oh, guys, we're just taking lunch orders. You don't do that. Because that's a special area for a special purpose. That's what cleanliness is like in the Old Testament. And so a woman who is having menstruation and stuff, there's a time period where the Lord said, stay at home, rest, not because of sin, but because I want you to come clean and ready and feeling good. And then you can come into worship. And so that's not a bash against women. Actually, it's a protection. Because now there's a protection built into the family's worship time that we're going to protect mommy, and this is how we're going to do worship right now. And that's, we don't tend to think like that in our society. But that's what's happening. And so now this lady, she's never out of that unclean time, which means she can never do regular business in the community. She can never go to worship at church. She can never be in family gatherings. She can never be around people outside of that who are also getting ready for worship because then they are unclean to come in. And so this woman is literally hoping to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment and she herself is the fringe of society. She is the fringe. So now she comes to Jesus and reaching out in this crowd. And think for a minute. Everybody knows who she is. These towns are little. There's no Facebook because you don't need it. Because you're like, oh, that's her. Everybody knows. Everybody knows i got to stay a couple feet away from her. That's just how life is. And she's pressing into the crowd. The cost for her is very high, very high. And she has no money. She has no social standing. This lady, God bless her, she's, she's got a rough life. And she presses in the crowd and touches Jesus' garment. Why do you think she wouldn't, knowing, I mean, she must have felt something, right? And when something happened to her, wouldn't you think she'd be like, holy moly, I'm healed. She'd jump up, wow, finally, and it was free, amazing, like something. Jesus, you're the Lord, I, anything. Instead, what happens when Jesus calls out? Who touched me? Who touched me? Nobody answers. Everyone denies it. That was all of me. I didn't touch you. To the point where Peter's like, Lord, what are you talking about? Everybody's here. Everybody touched you. Can we just go to Jerry's house? Like, he's important. He's a, he's a leader in the synagogue, and they were just bashing you, but he came and knelt before you. Maybe this is our political moment to make things better for us because they don't like us, and everywhere we go, it's rough. The people love us. They hate us, but if we work together, we can install you as king, and then we'll overthrow the Romans, and everything will be great. And it doesn't say that exactly, but this is pretty much what's on Peter's mind to the point where when Peter gets... When Jesus gets taken captive by the Romans, Peter's the first one to pull out a sword and fight. He's still got this in his head. So everyone denies it. And then what does it say to this woman? Verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden. You know, this is a woman who's been hidden for 12 years. For 12 years she's been hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, just like Jairus, 
She declared in the presence of all the people why she touched him. How embarrassing. And how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus looks at her and says, employee, client, patient, friend, weird woman. He looks at her and he says, daughter. Man, 12 years on the fringe, 12 years hidden. And the first word you hear from the Savior is daughter. How amazing. Not only that, but this is Jesus who's healing people. This is Jesus who Jairus really did bow before, the synagogue leader. This is Jesus who is restoring her even with a word. Because now she's not unclean anymore. Ready for this? She has come further even than those priests and those Pharisees could ever get in the temple. Because she is standing face to face with the creator of all things. God himself who made her. And now has healed her. And he calls her daughter. What priest wouldn't give up everything he had? What any one of us wouldn't give up everything we have to come into God's presence and hear that one time? And she gets to receive it. How amazing. And then he just walks away. How weird is that? Because she's restored. And he goes on his way. Let's continue reading. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came. That's the guy Jarius. He said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And when they were all weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given for her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You know, for Jesus, for a teacher to come into a place where there was death, he wasn't allowed to touch the body and then do worship things. It was unclean. But Jesus, because he's God, Everything he touches, though it may be unclean, becomes clean. Even this woman who touched Jesus, though unclean, became clean. And now this daughter is restored to life and restored to her family because of Jesus. He is life. He is power. He's incredible. One time I was driving in Iraq, and we were um, on a patrol. We'd been out for a long time. And um, I don't remember what we were doing, but we were doing something. I don't know. And it was like 2 in the morning. And we were driving back into our base called Rustamaya, which is a trash heap. Literally, it was on a dump. It was horrible. And um, we came into Rustamaya, and we're coming down the main road, which is called Route Pluto. And Route Pluto was like Highway 40. It was giant Highway 64, this big one. It was big, giant, multiple lanes across, big highway. And... Off the sides and stuff, there was dirt areas and you know, all kind of stuff, and people would set up little shops and things. So it was different in the sense that you could, you could drive right off the highway into little roads and things like that. So it wasn't quite as established as this road, but it was big like this highway. And so Pluto was a weird road because it was generally safe because we checked it all the time, but it was also a big target. So we checked it constantly. So that means that trucks would drive like two miles an hour 
just scanning, looking for bombs all day long. That was their whole job. And they had helicopters and all that stuff because that route has to be open. So it was safe in that sense. And our normal tactic was to go as fast as the slowest truck will go. It's hard to hit a moving target. And so it was dangerous. Um, don't tell my mother. So uh, we were driving as fast as the truck, slowest truck would go. So if the slowest truck with all the armor on it and stuff would go 55, we'd go 55. If the slowest truck goes 70, everybody goes 70. As fast as we can go as a group, that's how fast you go. And so we're driving along, and uh, there's a Bradley fighting vehicle, which is like a little mini tank in front of us. There's three of them. We can see them in a row, and they're doing something. Two o'clock in the morning. Nobody's out. There's a military curfew. Nobody's supposed to be driving. Nobody's doing anything. And we are in Humvees. So obviously, we're obviously military. This is obviously not just like a Nissan Sentra driving by, you know? So we're driving along in this route. And the Bradley's in front of us. And uh, our gunner, who's in the machine gun in the turret, he had a spotlight. And so we told him, hey, dude, jump up there. Just flash him like, hey, it's us. You can see by our lights who we are. Check us out. We're not a threat to you. Because if there's a fight between them and us, they're going to win. Like there's little tank, Humvee. You know, we're not going to win that fight. So we're driving up, and I, I don't have their frequency, so I can't call them on the radio, but we're calling around to the base, which is nearby, like, hey, we're coming in. Let the Bradleys know we're good to go. And so uh, the Bradleys in front of us, and they're doing fine, and they kind of slow down. They see us, and they pull off to the side. And we're like, great. Slow Bradleys, we're going to blaze through. So we start to get close. So we're about here to the back of the room, maybe away from one of the Bradleys, a little bit further than that. And again, 2 o'clock in the morning. And the Bradley, the last Bradley, pulls out hard, violently into the middle. And this green laser targets us. And their turret zips around and points right at us. And the whole cab of the truck fills with this like eerie green light. And it was like something out of a movie. It's like, it looks like a triangle that spins, the targeting system. And so that sucker is on us, and it's just there. And my driver, his name was Campbell. Campbell was... He's legit. He was a great dude. And we're driving together, and Campbell goes, like that. And he goes, oh, brother. Oh, brother. And he's like yelling at him. Hello. And I was like, Campbell, just, just wait a minute. And, we're, and that was everybody was, and we're, just, and we're just still driving. And Campbell just took his foot off the gas, and we're just sort of like backing up slowly as we're you know, losing speed. That is, backing up from them, because they're still going. And then the target system turned off, and he went to the side. And on the radio, they're like, <laughs> what? What? They thought it was the funniest thing they had done all night. Just point the laser at us. And let's see what happens. It would be hilarious. We're going to talk to you guys about that later. It would be so funny. That's what they did. They just targeted us just because they thought it would be hilarious. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. You know, this funny part is, those are the same guys that when you call the cavalry, like, we're in trouble, they're the guys that come out. How do you know who you can trust? Sometimes in life it feels like you're hanging over the side of a building with a rope. Can you even trust that equipment? Sometimes in life it feels like even the people that you depend on, if you've got to call the cavalry, sometimes they're joking with you can you even trust them? Can you put your faith into something that was made by the lowest bidder? Can you put your faith into something that's fallen like a person who will let you down? Because people do let you down. 
And I'm here today to tell you that our Savior Jesus, we can count on him. How do I know that we can trust him? It's not just because he restored this woman with the issue of blood. It's not just because he was able to raise a child from the dead. It's because Jesus Christ, who is so perfect in all of his ways, obeyed the Father perfectly, that he would go to the cross and die for you and me. He would take all of the punishment and wrath of sin and all our failures and all our undependability, all our unfaithfulness upon himself, that he would take all of that wrath, that we would be freed from it. And more than that, and the one reason that you can really trust Jesus is because he lives today. Because he rose from the dead, it changed everything. Because you can put your faith into people all day long and they will let you down and people come and go. You can put your faith into ropes, but if that rope is frayed, you're in trouble. You could put your faith into equipment, but that equipment was made by the lowest bidder. But if you put your faith into Jesus who lives eternally, Jesus who rose from the dead, Jesus who oversees all things, Jesus who's our creator, our sustainer, our judge, our Lord, and he who has called you son and called you daughter, then we can know life and know trust in him. Today I'm encouraging you, remember Jesus, the Jesus who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, the Jesus who restored the woman with the issue of blood, and the Jesus who died and rose again for us. Who can you trust but him? What rock do we have but him who is alive? What can we possibly hope except for Jesus Christ, who is our salvation? If you don't know him today, let today be the day of salvation where you bow your knee to Jesus and you say like Jairus, I have nothing else, I'm coming to you. Like the woman who's trembling before him, bow your knee to him and say, here's my everything. And I'm telling you from the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ will look at you and say, daughter, you are mine. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us if, that, if we believe in him, that he will save us and we will live with him forever. How incredible is it that it wasn't these people's great qualities. The woman came out of nowhere. And this synagogue leader guy, he doesn't stand up for Jesus later. When Jesus' life is on the line, he backs himself out, politically stepping away. But Jesus saves because Jesus saves because he loves us, because he's good, and because he is powerful to save. We can trust him, and he is good. Since I've been thinking about uh, Veterans Day, I've got one more little army story for you. And we were, uh, we were getting ready to go. I had to go to a big meeting one time, and um, this meeting was on a base far away, and so I was in Baghdad. And so I, took, I was on this little mission to go to this other base where there was an airfield. So I went to the airfield, and I had to, to ride on uh, War Horse, was what they called it, which was the cavalry division. They had all these helicopters everywhere. And so they had these Black Hawk helicopters, and their whole job was just to transport people around for meetings and all this kind of stuff. And so the meeting I was going to, we had money for the Bracky police or something. We had to buy some stuff or whatever, and so I had to go get the money. So they, they were like, take War Horse. You know, don't take the regular trucks because you have all this money. All right. So I go to the base, we go to the airfield, and the warhorse guys are there and they look awesome, right? They're all decked out in their stuff, big helicopters, it looks so cool. 
And, um, and I'm excited for this because like riding a helicopter, how cool is that, right? That's something, that's awesome. I'm gonna take some pictures, it's gonna be great. And so in order to go on the war horse, you had to turn in your weapons and you could take, I could take my pistol, I couldn't take my rifle. And that made me very nervous, I didn't like that. And so, uh, so I turned it in reluctantly to my guys and they're like, all right, sir, we'll be back in two days to pick you up when they bring you back. I'm like, all right, cool. And I get on, I get on, the, uh, on the helicopter and I'm sitting right next to, kind of in the middle next to the gunner because they have guns that go out either side. And there's a lady that gets on next to me and she was a lovely gal and her whole job was to process awards for people, like HR stuff. And so she had never, ever been anywhere else except the bunker that she worked in her whole time in Iraq. So she'd been in Baghdad for like six months and never been outside the bunker one time. And then her boss told her, you gotta get on this helicopter and fly to Camp Victory and turn in this paperwork. And so she's got like this binder that's with her that she's gotta turn in and she's like, that's her whole mission, so she's got it. And so she gets on the helicopter with me and she's looking at everything like this. She's just, I mean her eyes could not have been bigger. She's just looking around and she looks at me and she looks at the gunner guy and he loads the gun and she looks at me and she's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> and I said, I, I said, we're, we're gonna fly. He goes, okay. And so we start to go, and now when helicopters lift off, they're weird. It's like balancing on a pin of a needle kind of feeling. So the, the thing picks up like this and we start going. And she looks at me and she goes, are we flying? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we're, we're going now. We're, it's gonna be okay, we're, we're going now. And thankfully, I'd been on a helicopter a couple times, so this is not my first time. But it feels weird, right? And we're lifting off. The most dangerous place on the helicopter ride is the takeoff and the landing. Not for the flying, but because you're in a stationary place. And helicopters tend to land like this. So if you want to shoot that helicopter down with a missile, you wait till it stops and goes, because that's the slowest time it's going to go. If it's doing other things, like you're pretty good, right? It's hard to hit it, that is. And so uh, we're taking off, and all of a sudden on the front dash, mer, 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 we're being targeted by something. And it's blinking and lights, and the gunner guy's yelling something, and, this, and the helicopter, we're only like, I don't know, 20 feet off the ground maybe, and the helicopter banks hard over, up, we're all over the place, flares are poop, 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 popping out, and, it, and the guy's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, we're going, and it was, wild and this lady next to me goes hi jesus and just i don't know exactly how she got a hold of me have you ever had a kitten that is like you're trying to hold it and it just is everywhere and it's just the most painful it's like you're just uh you can't she just clutched onto ever and i was like like this she's choking me it was i didn't know what to do and she now she's crying out to the Lord. So I was like, amen. I don't know. But she, I mean, it's just digging into my skin. And so she's pulling me, pulling me like out of my seat, almost into her lap. And I'm like, it's going to be okay. Because I'm choking. It's going to be all right. And we're just all over the place, right? And then, merk, 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 goes off. And the guy's like, whew. Because Warhorse does this every day. They get targeted every day. They thought it was hilarious. And so this lady, the rest of the flight, was like, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to hold your hand. And I was like, okay. She never held my hand. She grabbed onto my skin. And, it was, and I was bruised by the time. It was like a handprint. By the time I got back, I'm like, 
we had a 45-minute th- flight. <laughs> when we landed and we came in like this, she's like, it's going to happen again. It's going <laughs> it, it to it's not, it will, in Jesus' name, it will not happen again. <laughs> I was like, and we were fine. Praise the Lord. We landed. And I did not have a return flight with her. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Here's what I'm telling you that story. I'm telling you that story because it's a fun army story and it's fun. I'm telling you that story because, hey, it's real life. And we can end this sermon with all the scary things. There's so many scary things, guys. So many scary things in life. Finances, relationships, health, people, and all the things that we bring in angst to God. And every day, doesn't it feel like, especially in like little cycles sometimes, how days are fine, you're flying, everything's good, and then all of a sudden the alarms are going off and stuff's shooting off and you don't know what's going on and you're just trying to grab onto something. And I was the worst person to grab onto because I was just choking. Grab onto Jesus. How do you do that? You do that by just falling on your knees and saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I trust you. Really, Christianity is about trusting Jesus. The whole Bible comes down to this question. Are you going to trust you? Are you going to trust your strength, your money, your good looks, your ability, your talent, your degrees, your shoe collection? (laughs) We're friends. Are you going to trust your equipment? I got riches. I'm good. I got my 401k is decent. Stock portfolio is okay. I got a nice car. House is good. Are you going to trust your job? What are you going to trust? If your answer is anything but Jesus Christ, then when you're standing before the God of creation, the judge of the world, he's not going to say son or daughter. But if your trust is in him, even if the alarms are flashing, even if the flares are going, even if you're targeted, even if it's terrifying, even if you're just sitting there, oh, brother, whatever, I'm telling you, he will look into your eyes and say, daughter, because you belong to him. It's about believing in Jesus and about trusting him. It's not how much money you give. It's not how great you are in every way that you think. It's not how successful your ministry is. It's about trusting Jesus. That's life. And so today, what I'm calling you to do is get on your knees and say, Jesus, I'm yours. And you can do that spiritually, you can do that physically, whatever, it doesn't matter. But you come to him and say, Lord, I know I'm not good enough, but you, oh God, you died and rose again. And I trust you. Amen.